Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Three years have passed since the unthinkable happened when a gunman killed 20 children and six staffers at Sandy Hook Elementary. That was 13 years after the unthinkable happened at Columbine High School in Colorado. And now, the killing of 14 people by a heavily armed couple in San Bernardino, California. Would tougher regulation have prevented or at least throttled this or any of the gun massacres that keep happening in the United States? What makes us so uniquely prone to gun violence? Can technology or market-driven innovations offer any sort of common ground between the gun lobby and gun control advocates? We talked to Paul Barrett, senior writer at Bloomberg Businessweek and author of two books, Glock, The Rise of America's Gun, and American Islam, The Struggle for the Soul of a Religion. Full disclosure, stay with us. Local broadcast of Full Disclosure is made possible by the support of Elwood Thompson's, aspiring to feed the heart and soul of our community through a strong commitment to local and organic food. Elwood Thompson's, located at the top of Richmond's Carytown. And you will find me at Elwood's hoarding chia bars by Health Warrior, one of the fastest growing food companies in the country. Health Warrior taps ancient wisdom to fuel the doer, the achiever, the conqueror inside of you. Their chia bars are the only bar with chia as the main ingredient. Ounce for ounce, they have more omega-3 than salmon, more fiber than oatmeal, and more protein than tofu. Chia bars by Health Warrior. Visit them at healthwarrior.com. Paul, thank you for coming on. I know you're slammed. You're on deadline. Yep. Glad to, glad to be here, Robin. He joins us from Bloomberg's global headquarters in Manhattan. And here in studio with me is Craig Shealy, a regular on the show. He's managing principal at Black Creek Group. He's been hunting since, what, I think the age six. He's the owner of multiple firearms, and yet he advocates for gun control. How are you, sir? I'm well, thanks. Thanks for having me, Robin. And uh, Paul, it's quite a pleasure. Honored to be speaking with you. I love your books. Thank you. Same here. Uh, Paul, I, you know, you reflexively when these things happen and now they almost seem like they're weekly, you get called by all the news outlets, by NPR. Uh, you have to queue up. You have to spool up another sort of essay that looks at this and try and makes any sense of it. Are there any policy remedies? What makes this uh, recent shooting in San Bernardino, which we understand has some potential links to ISIS so different from everything else. I mean, the guns were bought legally, after all. California is not an easy state in terms of acquiring a semi-automatic rifle. Uh, What were your first impressions? Well, I think that it's becoming clear that this was an act not of uh, workplace rage, uh, not some random provocation, but of a planned out uh, massacre uh, by a, in this case, a pair of fanatics. And um, we have uh, a pattern along these lines in this country uh, that uh, spans uh, ethnic backgrounds and religious orientations. You can go from Timothy McVeigh to the very, very recent uh, Planned Parenthood uh, shooting in uh, Colorado Springs uh, to the Fort Hood shootings, which did have... Uh, some uh, Islamic overtones to them, to the most recent San Bernardino uh, atrocity, which it's gradually becoming clear, although we should still be cautious in how we talk about this, uh, it seems like there may be some uh, overtones of Islamic fanaticism. But none of these actions, I think, are either susceptible to being prevented by tinkering with gun laws, nor are they easily subscribed to organized uh, systemic uh, terrorism. Um, These are, in the main, these are sort of one-off 
lone wolf type uh, events. Uh, They have different uh, themes that characterize or color the actions of the individual. Uh, But mostly what we end up with is deeply disturbed, deeply angry people who glom on to some ideological veneer uh, as they go about their really just uh, essentially uh, evil uh, wrongdoing. I know you're not given to using the term terrorism in this case. It doesn't necessarily, you know, it's it's too much of a catch-all, too much of a catch basin for various degrees of crime. But you saw what happened in the Aurora, Colorado shooting. I mean, there's a significant amount of premeditation there. The guy was mentally disturbed. There was a record of him seeking yeah. psychiatric help. Uh, he had booby-trapped his apartment. Uh, you see a pattern of this planning and premeditation. I mean, certainly in Columbine, Colorado. Yeah. So uh, arose by any other name. I mean, yes, of course you can throw Islam into it, but the majority of these massacres seem to have the same kind of uh, string kind of run through them. You you buy these things rather legally. Uh, You can get high-powered rounds. You can take out a large number of people pretty uniquely in this country. Right. Well, not really uniquely in this country. Just a few weeks ago, we had an incident in Paris um, that uh, clearly, you know, was— uh, an act of terrorism. And, uh, you know, in, in Paris, France, you've got gun control of a sort that is unimaginable in this country, given the Second Amendment. So uh, my concern here is that, uh, you know, the the label, you know, if you want to call it terrorism, go ahead and call it terrorism. If you want to call it fanaticism, fine. This is not classic terrorism planned out by a uh, an identifiable group that is trying to express a very particular message. The people in San Bernardino, so far as we know, uh, unless there's some uh, secret message that they've left someplace, didn't didn't express themselves, didn't express any uh, any uh, you know thesis that went along with their action. Um, so I, I see you know there there being many many paths to this kind of mass violence. We definitely have a a history of these things in this country. The fact that firearms are readily available in this country certainly facilitates these kinds of actions. Um, But I don't think uh, the notion of uh, fiddling with the gun control laws such that we, we made national the laws that already applied, in this case, in California, would really be a plausible answer to what just happened. Instead, we have to look at the phenomenon of fanatical uh, violence that's often committed by people who are acting largely on their own. When you call something terrorism, it tends to draw pe- the listener toward the idea that there's a cause, that there's a or a war, or we can then declare war on terrorism. And I think that's what is so unhelpful. Um, there'd be no war to declare that would have stopped the people in San Bernardino, so far as we know. Now, it may turn out that they were acting on direct instructions um, from someone in Somalia or, uh, you know, or, or Yemen. That, that, I suppose, could come about. But if, if we know the, the facts so far, calling it terrorism really doesn't help you think about um, the phenomenon. I think instead it, it helps more to think about something like the... Uh, Boston Marathon bombing, two strikingly well-integrated immigrants who happened to glom on to uh, an extremist uh, philosophy 
that has Islamic overtones to it, and then they express their unhappiness and ultimately their rage through the prism uh, of that ideology. But I don't think you 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 get anywhere by by labeling it as terrorism. But if you want to call it terrorism, go right ahead. Paul, do you know at this point, or has it been fully established where the where the origin of all um, this couple's weapons? What what were the yes? Uh, law enforcement been... officials, federal law enforcement officials, have traced the four uh, firearms, and uh, the reports I've seen from the ATF have said that they all came from a gun store in a nearby suburban town called Corona, California, an ordinary. Uh, so far as I know, law-abiding gun store, which so far as we know, did perform background checks. The male uh, shooter here uh, apparently acquired the two handguns himself legally, passing the background check. He apparently has no criminal history. And a third party apparently um, acquired legally the two AR-15-style semi-automatic rifles that were used. And that third person, um, law enforcement has said, is being questioned, but is not at the moment thought to have been involved in the massacre or to have um, been involved in plotting it or in in any other way is being thought of as culpable. That's what we know so far. And then also in this case, it's worth noting uh, that that the the two bad actors were also, uh, law enforcement has said, uh, preparing uh, pipe bombs and had a collection right. of homemade uh, explosives, um, which obviously suggests that they may have had larger plans than what they actually carried out. Because uh, you know, th- assembling an arsenal like that would suggest that they may have um, greater ambitions than we uh, than we know about. I do have to ask both of you as a right. as a person. You know, I've I've occasionally shot a gun. I've I've taken target practice. I once tried to shoot at a duck uh, on a friend's Thanksgiving trip. It was eighteen nineteen years ago. Fortunately, I missed. I don't understand. Um, I'll ask you, Craig. Yeah. An AR fifteen, right? Yeah. That's a. It's like it says here. It's a lightweight intermediate cartridge, magazine fed, air cooled Armalite rifle with a rotating lock bolt. Okay. Do you need something like this if you're a hunter? to shoot wild boar. Like, I'm always thinking of the Walmart-issue right. hunting rifles. They, these things are almost like assault weapons, or you look at the Bushmaster weapons, sure. and Paul has written about these things. I mean, where, where are these things used uh, legally and normally outside of a gun range? Well, I, I mean, I think, and I, and I know Paul can certainly comment on this as well, but, I mean, there are a wide variety of weapons, and, you know, I, I jotted down a couple names of guns, and I was, I was actually going to quiz you and see if you could tell me which one is the assault weapon without doing any internet research, Robin. A Parazzi MX-8, a Beretta M9, and a Browning A5. I know there's a Browning semi-automatic that's been used in the past. I saw in yeah. Paul's book that the Miami police officers during the drug wars were woefully underarmed. Yep. They had kind of these cowboy-like revolvers. But I don't know outside of right. law enforcement well, who in the it, U.S. needs my, these. My point in asking you that question is just none of those are actually assault weapons technically. I mean the closest one you might argue is a, is the Beretta. It's actually a version of the government issue uh, sidearm for the military. A Parazzi is a high-end over and under and a Browning A5 is a long-standing semi-automatic shotgun made by Browning, normally a hunting weapon. The, the truth of the matter is you, you don't need an AR to go hunting. Having said that, there are a lot of ARs used 
and AR derivatives, which are used in hunting. So it's very difficult to draw such definitive lines within the gun world of, of what type of weapon is acceptable or quote-unquote safe and what kind of weapon is not. And this is one of the big concerns, I think, as a sort of lifelong gun owner that I have, is that there needs to be, to the extent there is any gun controls put in place, which which I would personally like to see, I think we still have to be thoughtful about how those are done because broad brush policies are, to the extent that they're they're trying to target certain types of weapons, could be very detrimental and really could have limited impact. So I think we have to really look at that very carefully. I mean, because a gun, you know, an assault weapon is not an assault weapon is not an assault weapon, and yet it is. I mean, any gun could be used to kill someone, yet any gun could be used in completely legitimate sporting activities, whether it's, you know, target practice, competitions, hunting, et cetera. Paul, what do you think? Well, I think you're focusing on the wrong issue. Um, the The cosmetic appearance of a gun, something that you think of as being – uh, an assault weapon, the black matte finish, uh, military style, very lightweight weapon that are, is familiar to even non-gun owners is the, the firearm that our troops in uh, sent to Iraq or sent to Afghanistan uh, carry. Yes, it may look to some people like a more ominous or a more deadly weapon, but the only element, the only element uh, of that weapon that makes it um, more lethal is its magazine capacity. Correct. Otherwise, you, you made a, a passing reference to guns sold at Walmart. I'm not really sure what you meant, but I, I, I think you, me- you meant grandpa's 30-06. That's right. Uh, yeah, used yeah. For, for hunting. And in fact, grandpa's um, wooden stock rifle is more powerful That's right. than the AR-15, Fi- is more deadly shot for shot, and will, and will kill and, and be more certainly lethal. So a big part of the problem, Robin, when you were talking about guns here is that a lot of the people who talk about it don't know what they're talking about. Right. Well, Paul, I'm thinking back to the Sandy Hook uh, uh, shooting spree and the killing of of 25 people, something that uh, really shocked the country. I mean, Pat, it was like beyond the pale. But here you had a really runty um, uh, kid. He was he was on the spectrum of autism. He was mentally disturbed. He had issues with his mother, who he killed beforehand. Could he have pulled off all that damage with a Glock or with a kind of a pump and shoot gun where he had yeah, to reload? Sadly, the, sadly, the one word answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Um, in the confines of a classroom or the lunchroom where the San Bernardino massacre took place, in fact, Grandpa's shotgun, normally used to hunt ducks, would be more lethal. Yeah. It would take fewer pulls of the trigger to kill more children because at very, very short range, actually a shotgun is more lethal than the the AR-15. Would a Glock do this horrible job? Sadly, yes. If you know how to reload the the Glock with with magazines, you could have just very ordinary 10-round magazines. And if you brought enough of them with you and you knew how to press the button to eject the magazine, slam the new magazine into the bottom of the grip and keep firing, absolutely you would do exactly the same damage. The diff- the question would be, what kind of magazine does the person have? Yeah. What kind of caliber is the gun? If it's a 40 caliber gun or a 45 caliber gun, it's actually going to be potentially more lethal. So uh, again, th- th- all well, of this discussion points to the fact that uh, tinkering with the gun laws, which I actually would favor, 
I mean, I am in favor of universal background checks. I am actually in favor of a law that would ban oversized, you know, 30-round magazines. Not because I think it's going to solve a lot of problems, but just because it might solve a problem at the margin. It might stop What would universal person. background checks have done in San Bernardino, California? Well, well, a very nothing. clear and simple and integrated person nothing, with a nothing, law-abiding no, brother. Nothing, nothing, nothing. But that, but now you're arguing my argument. Well, no, no, Paul. I mean, <laughs> I know you. You it, when these things happen, when they regrettably hit the wire, you see them first thing in the morning. I'm sure you reverse engineer you know, what policy remedy could have thwarted or slowed this down? No, no, but policy remedies don't always remedy situations. Well, what what could have prevented this? Are you just saying that the Second Amendment, the way that it is, uh, even in a state that on the margin has tougher gun laws, what these guys did was just inevitable and unstoppable? Well, not not inevitable, but was what happened in Paris um, easy to stop? No, when you have fanatics who are thoughtful, willing to uh, commit acts which may likely result in their own death. Um, In fact, you know, many of these uh, episodes we have in this country, the shooter is, is, is affirmatively suicidal, wants to die and wants to go down bringing innocent lives with him. And it, it should, it shouldn't, it may be shocking, but it shouldn't be shocking that there is not necessarily a rational uh, policy change that we can make tomorrow by passing a law that would directly impede that person from acting. I mean, uh, you know, the Oklahoma City bombing was not going to be impeded by a legislative debate in Washington. So it, that's a hard truth to to choke down, but I think it's one that's that's worth contemplating. Uh, and also, the, uh, alongside that, we should acknowledge that the fact that guns are readily available in this country makes it easier for the lone wolf person to act. There are already 300 million guns in private hands in this country. That means that even if you don't care to go to a Main Street gun store to acquire your firearm, you can probably get one across the street. We're going to unpack that. We're going to get to that. Craig and I were talking about it. We are talking to Paul Barrett, senior writer at Bloomberg Business Week and author of Glock, The Rise of America's Gun, as well as American Islam, The Struggle for the Soul of a Religion. And here with me in the studio is Craig Shealy, a regular on the show. He's managing principal at Black Creek Group and a lifelong hunter. I do want to ask you about that, Craig. We uh, oftentimes have talked about the secondary market, which is a real Wild West. I mean, there was something on the Today Show a couple of years ago, the guy, the, the the correspondent, the investigative correspondent looks like a game show host. And he shows up in a parking lot somewhere in Texas and someone who was two degrees removed from a cartel in Mexico is offering him a shoulder held launcher. Right. It's like something out of Breaking Bad. I mean, to say right. nothing, Paul talks about the the you know, hundreds of millions of guns that are out there. And a lot of people, the overwhelming majority of people, they have these registered, they they take care of their guns. They're not reckless about shaving off the serial numbers or right. anything else like that. But the secondary market, I mean, if you're pursuing a life of crime, it's a feast for you out there. You can yeah. just look on the internet and get what you want. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I can, I could, I could pull up a website right now that um, specializes in. Uh, it's basically a, a Craigslist of of guns in uh, in Virginia alone. Um, and in Virginia, it's a state where it's perfectly legal. Um, I could sell you a gun face to face. All that I really have to see is that you have a valid form of identification, and you have to tell me that you're not a a felon. 
uh, and that you don't have, there's no reason why you're... you're what, on a person-to-person level? Yeah, and a face-to-face transaction, person-to-person mm-hmm. transaction. And I can take your cash and hand you a gun, and there's no record of it. There's no background check. Um, there's nothing done. And, and I mean, um, that happens every day, all the time in Virginia. Um, and uh, I've actually done that um, uh, personally. Um, but now, but it scares scares the heck out of me that that it's so easy to be done because I, you know, I trust myself to do that, and I'm interested in largely sort of collectible stuff to the extent I do it. But um, the uh, the fact that you know on that same website there's a whole host of of, uh, of weapons that could be used in a, a whole host of pretty gruesome ways. I I do I do um, I want to come back to one thing Paul mentioned with respect to to assault rifles. I mean there is a very important distinction uh, with an assault rifle, and yes the the actual let's say the the bullet and the amount of powder that are that is in a a, a two two three or a five dot five six uh, which is the the generally the caliber of most assault rifles um, while that is less powerful than say your grandpa's thirty out six that he used to go deer hunting what is in addition to the magazine capacity which is very easy to find very very high capacity you're talking thirty round uh, magazines for those weapons in addition to that. Um, those are actually relatively low recoil weapons. And what that means is it's very easy, relatively speaking, for pretty much anyone to squeeze off more rounds without the kind of proper training um, that, that Paul, you were referencing, someone that, let's say, they only had a 10-round magazine for a Glock, being able to to, to drop those and, and, and slap the next one in. It's far easier for someone to have a 30-round magazine in an AR-15 and squeeze off many, many, you know, all, all 30 deadly rounds um, relatively relatively easily, and, and they can control that. Uh, it requires less training. I mean, it's why that weapon is, is chosen for military application. So I'm not, I'm not trying to vilify that weapon um, because, I mean, I agree that it's very difficult, per my earlier comments, it's very difficult to regulate on a weapon-specific basis. But I really think um, that there are some really important distinctions. But getting back to, to the secondary market, you can you can literally buy any uh, assault weapon, military grade weapon that you can think of short of fully automatic. And it's not that you can't buy fully automatic in this country; it just takes a lot longer and requires uh, special uh, clearance from the ATF. Um, so, and you can again, you can do that. I could show you the website right now. We could go buy pretty much anything you could imagine this afternoon um, and, you know, hand somebody cash or, or, uh, or what have you. And, um, and there would be no background check. Uh, there would be, and, and Virginia is by no means the only state where that's the situation. Um, what is it? Some, Paul, you would know this. I think, what is it, 33, 34 states where that's the case? There's no, no background checks for, for person-to-person transactions? Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. Paul, when you see a stat like um, – Homicides by firearm per 1 million people, where the United States has clocked at 29.7 killings by firearm per 1 million people versus Switzerland is next at 7.7. And you go down to Austria at 2.2, Australia 1.4, Canada, our friends north of the border, 5.1. What's your immediate response to that? You see these things tweeted out almost reflexively in knee-jerk faction. And another stat, Americans make up less than 5% of the world's population, yet own roughly 42% of all the world's privately held firearms. What do you say to that? 
Well, what I say to that is, first, we've we've now shifted topics from uh, the you know mass killing situation to the much broader and uh, equally important uh, question of the pervasiveness of firearms generally in society. So let's just note that. Um, then I think that there's a, there is a correlation uh, between the uh, the several numbers you've just cited, which is to say that while the United States has a level of violent crime generally that's comparable to those of similar industrialized democracies, the lethality of our violent crime is far greater. And I think it's very fair to assume that that's because the pervasiveness of of guns in this country, particularly handguns more than rifles, um, makes our violent crime deadlier. So that when we attack each other in this country, because so many of us have a gun at home or in our uh, glove box of our car, we tend to kill each other more uh, efficiently. And I think that is uh, simply a fact. I don't think that any, um, uh, you know, the most ardent uh, pro-gun rights person, you know, should not be denying that fact. And one way of conceiving of that fact is that that's the cost of the uh, freedom to uh, widely own guns. Uh, constitutional rights, like the right to free speech and the right to uh, own a firearm, um, those rights have side effects, have secondary effects. F- free speech can be dangerous. Um, similarly, uh, but that doesn't mean that we don't protect free speech. Similarly, the right to own a firearm has secondary effects, and that is if you if you allow that right to be enforced um, pervasively, you end up with a lot of guns in a significant minority of the households in the country. And that means that when people get angry at each other, spouses, uh, so forth, they're going to kill each other more frequently. And it also means that when ordinary street criminals um, want to go about their illegal trade, it's going to be easier for them to acquire firearms. Paul, is it true or is it apocryphal that a majority of card-carrying NRA members actually support tougher restrictions? They don't tow the same line that Wayne LaPierre and and management there in Northern Virginia has been kind of uh, sticking to for years? This takes you into the fascinating area of opinion research and surveys and polls and um, points to the fact that it really matters how you frame a question on a survey. Because the only way we know what Americans think about something or gun owners think about something is by doing a survey. We don't actually go out and ask all Americans or even a significant minority of Americans when we want to get their attitude on something. It is the case that huge majorities of uh, survey subjects favor um, uh, gun restrictions that the NRA ardently uh, opposes. It is also the fact that surveys have been done of gun owners specifically that show uh, greater support for certain regulations, like background checks, mm-hmm. um, that then certainly you would find uh, uh, in the opinion pool at uh, headquarters at, at NRA. However, you will also find other survey results that cut in the other direction. I mean, for example, you will find uh, you know support for quote stronger gun laws bouncing up and down, shifting over time. You will also find, I've found anecdotally, um, that you'll, you'll, you'll encounter many gun owners who say, on the one hand, I think the NRA is too extreme and I'm, even, I'm embarrassed by some of the things that Wayne LaPierre says. 
But I will not speak out about that in public. And I think it's important to have the NRA there because the anti-gun people are too extreme and they want ultimately to deny me my right to have my hunting rifle or my uh, pistol that I keep at home for uh, home security. And uh, I so I favor the NRA, even though I disagree with some of the things they say. So, you know, when you get into the realm of public opinion, uh, you're, you're in very, very murky territory. And, Paul, for our listeners out there, I'm not an expert on this. I do remember Bill Clinton signing uh, the assault weapons ban into law. I think it was in the autumn of, of 1994. Right. And it lapsed uh, a decade later. I believe George W. Bush was in power. Right. Um, and, and legislation, I mean, calls to bring it out there. I know Dianne Feinstein has been outspoken about it. It, it, it's just a non-starter. It's not seeming to happen in a divided uh, Washington. Uh, what did that do on the margin? How different was the environment back then? I mean, compare and contrast for us what buying an AR-15, how much more difficult that would have been underneath that kind of regime? Well, it wouldn't have been more difficult because there is a so-called assault weapons ban in California. See, this is this gets you. This this shows you the the foibles of and the weaknesses of trying to legislate uh, in, in this area. No, but work the, that across the board with me. Work it into Columbine. I mean, not Columbine, but Aurora. Uh, things that have happened since two thousand and four. Yeah. Work the that into weapons, Connecticut. The assault weapons ban that was enacted nationally was a very porous, very poorly designed law. What uh, gun manufacturers were able to do was tinker with the cosmetic uh, features of the gun and continue to sell the firearm. That's right. Yeah, I was, became, I was told and by— it became, And it became, in fact, more popular. Sure. And Over, I was told, in fairness, I was told that it was akin to the way the automobile industry in the country snuck in kind of the, the SUV as a light truck to evade certain emissions— uh, MPG restrictions. I mean, it was just another example of rebranding the same thing or remarketing. Well, and you, it was, get, you, it was, get, you still had the secondary market as well. I mean, right. you, so you didn't, you didn't, you know, the ban did not did not confiscate a pretty large existing installed base even at that time, which has continued to grow. And and just to maybe talk specifics, Paul. I mean, but wait, is it a fallacy again, Paul? Is it Paul? Craig, is it a fallacy to think we didn't have these kind of events uh, during that regime of the assault weapons ban? You say it was very porous, but what is it you think that there's been a significant uptick in these things just in the last seven or eight years? But not caused by the legal availability of assault weapons. Then let I me mean, hold you because, to what, because what the caused guy, it. Be, well, I, I don't know what causes the distinctively American-style lone wolf uh, uh, fanatical mass k- killing. That, that's a fascinating pathology that we have in our country. But the killer at Virginia Tech did not need an assault weapon. He no. used no. only handguns. So the, this uh, desire to find a simple answer is actually a pernicious impulse. There isn't a simple answer. And if you try to oversimplify it, you're going to end up with an irrelevant and possibly counterproductive answer because the banning of the assault weapon, the so-called assault weapons, actually made that style of rifle more popular. And it caused people, it caused the gun-owning minority in the country to shift toward that. And more, even more than that, a, an element of the, of the so-called uh, 
assault weapons ban was a magazine capacity restriction. Right. And, and that was evaded by the production of so-called pre-ban magazines. I discussed this in my book about Glock, that yeah. Glock simply ran the factories three shifts a day and filled warehouses with uh, with the equipment that was going to be banned on the day of, of enactment, and then basically was able to sell off that inventory uh, at a higher price, making a greater profit yeah. in, o- over time. So legislation, sadly, is not always a panacea. You have to be uh, realistic about the potential limitations of what we can do. And all of this, a lot of this traces back to the Second Amendment. If there were no constitutional right to keep and bear arms, well, then we could have all kinds of of real bans, thorough bans, effective bans. I'm not advocating that necessarily, but let's remember that enshrined in our Constitution is this thing about keeping and bearing arms, which in uh, 2008, the United States Supreme Court interpreted as an individual right to own handguns in the home. So we, you got to take all of these things into consideration right. and not jump to simple answers. Well, well I, you, I know you, you, you probably roll your eyes, both of you, when you're asked something to the effect of what would Thomas Jefferson have done with a Bushmaster? Or could you imagine in like a Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure No, I got, a, I got a better one. How about the old uh, Saturday Night Live skit with John Belushi? What would, um, what would Napoleon have done with a B-52? I mean that that was a very funny skit. I mean that's a, that's a silly question. That's completely ahistorical and, mm. and has may, has no you know significance. Well, I guess I want to go back to something. I mean, you know, while I you know certainly I think there's no there's no one simple answer. I, I do um, think, and I think Paul, you you've even said earlier in this in this uh, in this discussion that that you would advocate some some pretty simple things that while they may not solve every problem, they certainly may not prevent. Um, all of these tragedies from occurring, and, and likely, clearly, would not. It seems like, seems like there are some simple things that can and should be done. Sure. That that really wouldn't be that difficult. That could uh, be and, like low hanging fruit, right. and that could, um, you know, lower the lower the uh, let's say you know marginal probability of these things occurring. And you know, I guess you know it's sort of okay. Maybe it adds a, a few dollars of transaction cost and. A bit of time to go buy the next weapon or the next box of ammunition or, or whatever whatever these things are applied to, um, you know. And I'm I'm talking about same things I think you would be talking about, which is universal background checks. Yes. Um, you know, uh, I think some reasonable magazine size limitations. I mean, sign me up. I'm, know, I'm in favor of I, all those things right. as a voter, and I would support legislators who support them. Right. And I think they may have you. You put it beautifully. They may have you know some type of marginal deterrent effect, um, and not and they and with very little social cost on the other side. Uh, you know, the problem is is that our gun politics have become ideologically right. radioactive. They're, they're bizarre. They're perverse. We have a mass shooting and people run out and buy more guns. You know, everything is, is upside Paul, down. Paul, talk it's, about that. Talk yeah, about exactly. that. When you we, see like Smith & Wesson, you know, the stock is up 100% in 2015. These guys have yeah. had an unbelievable compound annual growth rate. When these things happen, yeah, people that, go out there to buy them in theory, right, because I guess they're worried about confiscation or maybe the, the country seems more licentious. They want to be armed. There's a paradox. It's a... Yeah. 
And, and suddenly the, the country is even more awash in hardware. Well, you, you saw this. You saw this at, at, at Sandy Hook. Right after Sandy Hook, there was a huge run up in in demand and and uh, prices of these of these all all, all brands of, of ARs uh, assault rifles. Um, and I mean, you know, uh, I, I didn't mean to jump in for Paul. Go ahead, Paul. But uh, no, I, no, no. You keep going. You, I, I would. You're you're making the point. I would make. Yeah. I mean, there was a huge. I mean, it's this. It's this horribly perverse. Um, uh, but you know, it, reality that that when these events happen, and what I can't what I can't quite put my finger on, and I, Paul, I'd love to get your take on this. It, what is the delineation? Is it the coverage? It seems to be certain events happen, and it sparks these types of buying sprees and sort of hysteria, which you know is this bizarre, perverse incentive for for the for the gun manufacturers. Um, and then other events don't trigger that, and it, and it doesn't seem to be you know Sandy Hook triggered that. Um, and then it was a huge wave, and then it died down. There were still some other events that occurred that did not, you know, trigger it again. And then now we're starting to see—I I don't know if this is correct, but I saw some stats uh, this morning even that were saying that just, you know, in the days, just in the last couple of days, there's been um, a huge upsurge in, in gun sales just just since yeah. the San Bernardino event. I don't, I don't have— too many stats or, or or anything. You may have some of that, but uh, tell me what what are your thoughts? I mean, what what are the things? Um, what is it about certain events that trigger that type of reaction when yeah. seemingly similar ones don't? Well, I think there are two things to keep an eye on. One, when whenever the twenty four hour um, uh, cable news coverage kicks in, so that you see on multiple cable stations, continuous coverage that is unmissable so that anyone flicking on a, uh, a cable news network, either on a traditional television or via their, their uh, desktop computer at work, uh, glances at it. If you, if, you, if you see an event that starts to get that kind of coverage, um, it, it's a candidate for sparking hysteria. Right. Second, and this deserves uh, attention too, is um, what the NRA does and what its affiliated groups do. I mean, I, I get NRA alerts of various sorts. And while they may not comment publicly, um, when the gun rights infrastructure snaps into action and begins sending alerts to its constituents, they're not making public statements. In fact, they're declining to, to comment publicly to mass media, um, but they are sending signals um, which are not uh, hard to pick up, that this is sort of one of those events. Here come the Obamaites and the Clintonites. They're, they're coming to get your guns. Uh, I think that ripples out via social media, right. and you get a level of hysteria that you otherwise wouldn't get. Because I do want to stress that alongside everything I've been saying, my skepticism about this or that legislative step um, being a, a suitable response to uh, a calamity. The, the NRA's strategy of sowing panic and um, marketing uh, the greater dissemination of firearms by means of fear is also a newish element. Um, let's remember that as recently as 1999, in the wake of the Columbine massacre, uh, Wayne LaPierre went to the uh, Hill and actually said that he had no objection to universal background checks. So let that sink in for a second. As recently as 1999, what now the, N the NRA— So what changed? Well, the, I think the NRA began to see the profit in 
getting more and more extreme. And the NRA has become ang- concerned about its right flank, mm-hmm. about its libertarian extremist flank. Well, yeah, hold, hold this thought because I, I definitely, in the 15 minutes or so we have left, want to want to focus on this. Full disclosure, we are talking to Paul Barrett, author of Glock, The Rise of America's Gun. And joining us in studio is Craig Sheely, a lifelong hunter. He's managing principal at Black Creek Group. Paul, you hear um, a, a kind of a libertarian or Tea Party out, uh, element out there always inveighing against this idea of confiscation, right? And that goes back to our, uh, you know, uh, God-given colonial rights in the United States that you have to be able to um, arm a militia, you have to be able to turn against the tyranny of the crown, whatever it goes back to that's kind of 250, 300 years old. Confiscation is always invoked um, these days when you talk to People, especially the kinds that are going to go out and reflexively buy arms. What would that look like in the United States? I know it's it's unthinkable to a lot of people right now, but when you talk about three hundred million private arms, no, it's it's not. Uh, it's something that it's not worth spending a lot of time on because it's not plausible. It couldn't be executed. It's it's similar to the notion of sending all the undocumented immigrants back to Mexico in a short period of time. What would that look like? Well, it it would look like a police state that we simply could not pull off. We couldn't, we couldn't, we wouldn't stand for it actually sending law enforcement out to round up all of those undocumented immigrants. Similarly, it is inconceivable to imagine what the deputy sheriff in rural Texas would do when given the instruction, go out and in your county round up all the handguns. I'm kind of reminded yeah, that, of Ruby Ridge or some other scenario. But then, what I mean, is frankly, this, that would be dangerous. Well, what I is mean, this example? What is this yeah. example that we had with Australia, which in 1996 had this gunman, this mass shooting of 35 people, and there was a huge uh, backlash against that, and there was confiscation after yeah. that. Well, you know, they called it a, a gun buyback program, but aspects of it were mandatory, and they did get a lot of guns out of private hands. And that shows what you can do in a country that in many ways is similar to the United States, same language, industrialized, a democracy, very modern. Um, but in, in, in one crucial way, the presence of the Second Amendment is very different. They don't have our uh, political traditions and gun owning has never become the highly symbolic, highly charged practice that it is in this country. And that's why it's a, a different country. Same thing in the United in the UK. UK is very similar to us in many ways. But after the 1996 uh, Scottish uh, school massacre, there they banned handguns, and they have a much you know much much lower uh, handgun possession uh, statistic in the UK. Well, what about but it's, it's, it's a different country? <laughs> of course, and, yeah. and, and, and it would be a lot easier for people if you know. I always say to people who say, "Well, that's so wonderful that they have that there," and my thought is, it would be a lot easier for you to move there than it would be to remake the uni- entire United States into that foreign country. It just ain't happening. So if if you find their society that much more appealing, geez, maybe you ought to go there. Paul, what about underwriting? You hear this uh, flicked at every now and then that um, much the same way that you have to buy insurance coverage, health insurance coverage, or it's prohibitively difficult for you to own a car um, without automobile insurance that there are fines in certain states for people who decide to go bare. 
What about the constitutionality or the legality of of um, mandating that gun yeah. owners also buy insurance, which could then provide another tier yeah. of 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 checks, another another uh, backstop? That's an interesting that's an interesting proposal. I'm sure some people would come up with some Second Amendment argument. I don't see it. Uh, it does seem to me like something that that could be uh, legislated and would survive constitutional. Uh, challenge, which it's not going to survive the the NRA. I mean, the NRA is going to uh, attack it and make it into a big issue. Uh, but that is an interesting, uh, creative, uh, you know, approach. Uh, you know, Greg, what do you think about that? Well, I, I mean, I think it's I think it's a it's a it's a fair topic to 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 dive into. I mean, I think it, it opens up a, a slippery slope. Um, but but I also I also think that it could is something that could be implemented. I mean I think I think there are a lot of solutions that could be explored. I mean and this is one thing I I want to I want to sort of insert it in here a little bit back to kind of this idea of a backlash um, and back to the idea of um, um, Paul and you you talked about you know where where Lapierre was in 1999 versus where the NRA is today. Wayne Lapierre is the director of the NRA right, right now. He's the vice president. And, and, and sort of this, you know, this sort of real right wing, um, uh, flank. I, I actually, as a gun owner and, and someone who, you know, would like to see, you know, responsible legal gun ownership preserved, but also done, I think, a, a, hopefully a little more sanely, um, you know, my concern is that you're going to have a backlash the other direction at some point, and and that you know as you see sort of the and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, uh, Paul. You know as you see the the changing electorate in this country, um, you know there's probably a uh, and I don't want to delve into overly political uh, stuff here, uh, Robin, but um, so stop me if I, I get too too far off. No, off have at track. it. Go but, ahead. Go you ahead. know, I, I would venture to say there's probably a pretty decent statistical overlap between the folks that are, you know, big time Ted Cruz, uh, uh, Donald Trump, or um, I don't know, maybe Ben Carson supporters, and the folks who are very pro NRA and and um, and so forth. And and they're obviously entitled to their opinions and so forth. But my my concern is that really does not represent um, the electorate of the United States, right? And so as, as much as those folks may get whipped up into a, an interesting fervor and frenzy with some of the, the right-wing rhetoric, the reality of, of winning a national election is a whole other matter. And I, and I know we don't want to cover that here, but where I'm going with this is why not take a leadership position of responsible gun owners to say, hey, here are the things that we believe can be done and should be done and put those policies forward as a proactive step rather than waiting for a, a change which may be more dramatic and could even be, you know, dangerous in the in the context of this country. Well, I think you're you're sketching out the mission statement for a new organization that uh, that I'd like to sign up for. It's almost like a J Street versus APAC bifurcation, right? right? I mean, <laughs> you have not seen uh, a, a secession movement among gun owners to create something that's more uh, engagement centric NRA yeah. answer. Not a, not a uh, nothing uh, with any significant you know number of, of bodies uh, behind it, and that's because of the the fear uh, that the the NRA would uh, come down like a ton of bricks the way the sure. NRA. And, uh, and other gun rights activists did in uh, year 2000 
when uh, Smith and Wesson had the temerity to talk to the federal government at that right. time, the Clinton administration, about taking a variety of relatively modest steps having to do not with the banning of guns, not with confiscation of guns, but with the marketing of additional firearms right. and and the the thanks they got for trying to stake out that uh, more moderate position um, was uh, a a boycott. Right. That shut their factory down and almost put the company completely out of business. Yeah, I, re- I yeah I read your piece on that. Yeah, no, that's that's uh, that's absolutely right. And 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 I think, but that you know, that's got to come. I, the other thing that I think, and I know you know, um, Robin and I have have brainstormed about is, I mean, with the technology that's available today, I think a lot of these things can be done um, relatively relatively inexpensively. I mean, I'm talking about certainly background checks. I mean, with the databases and the information, you know, if the NSA knows who I'm chatting with on my Google Messenger, they ought to be able to figure out, you know, if I'm if I'm if I'm legally qualified to own a firearm pretty pretty easily, right? One would think I'm a huge fan of, of background checks. Yeah. And I think the system should be improved, made more comprehensive. There are there are state level records of domestic right. violence and uh, mental health issues that are not even loaded into the federal background check system. Right. I, I don't know why. Why? What's the argument against the idea of the background check database and hardware being the best computer stuff we could possibly have to keep us all safe and to keep safe the law-abiding gun owners so that you know law-abiding, taxpaying gun owners don't end up implicated in anything uh, improper and and, right. and you know toward that end, if you're a gun collector and you have a substantial number of firearms in your firearm safe and you buy them the right way and sell them the right way, you know go with God. It's all fi- it's all good. Right. Uh, so, Absolutely. So I, you know again, I, I, while I'm in favor of your your moderate gun owners group and I'll uh, even though I don't own a firearm myself, I'll sign up and send you a dues check. Uh, <laughs> just uh, you know tell me where to, where the 501c3 is and, okay. I, and I'm on board. Paul, tell okay. me, what do I keep hearing from gun owners that the government has actually started to hoard certain bullets? Something has been going on. I'm not very familiar uh, with is, the caliber, this is the con- vernacular. This is conspiracy foolishness. The, 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 the federal government, you know, via the military and law enforcement agencies, has huge stores of ammunition, of course, like they have, like they have large, you know, squadrons of jet fighters. And uh, there is no uh, real sustained shortage of ammunition. From time to time, as you have in any market, you get a run on the market. This is perversely sometimes caused by the same type of run on the Main Street gun stores, uh, you know, in the wake of a mass shooting. Um, but that, that's black helicopter stuff that doesn't deserve to be taken seriously. There were some interesting stats about even TSA, though by and large. Are you are you familiar with that? I mean, I and again, I'm 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 with you. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to uh, give into to, conspiracy, to give crackpot, into conspiracy theory, but... crackpot theory. I was just curious if that was. I had seen specifically a lot of 22 supposedly, which was which is a little bit of a an interesting thing. But I I have no idea. I, I I've never done a lot of reporting on it. I'm highly skeptical yeah. that there's some vast conspiracy to deny the populace. Uh, 22 caliber uh, ammunition, which after all is not the ammunition. Anyway, I, mean, it, yeah, I, I don't no, even I, I don't even want to go down the road. It's too it's too yeah. silly. Yeah, Paul, I'll look into your crystal ball in the few minutes that we have left. Uh, to the extent that this tragically continues and we get these things happening, what is it now? Almost it's been clocked at almost one a week. 
Uh, not that they're all analogous, not that they're they're all apples to apples situations. What happens? Uh, what, what what how does it then how does it then lead to an X Y Z? Especially I'm, with the political landscape changing. I mean, Hillary Clinton has been somewhat more outspoken about this. Yeah. Bernie Sanders, he's of Vermont. He believes that this should be left to the states. Uh, the Republicans don't seem to have any appetite uh, for some sort of omnibus agreement. Here's what I think will happen. I think in some uh, blue and purple states, you'll see some additional legislating at the state level so that you have states uh, catching up to where uh, Connecticut or California uh, or Massachusetts already uh, are on certain types of of uh, gun regulation provisions. I think if you you know had a change uh, in Washington that shifted control of both houses of Congress and uh, the White House to the to the D's, uh, well, then you might, you know, see universal background checks passed uh, nationally, and I think that would be a good thing. But that would require a sweeping change of control in Congress. I think it would be a good thing, and I don't think it would it would prevent the next um, mass shooting. Sadly, I, I don't say that with any glee. I just think it, that that's the the realistic. But uh, even from a political inside baseball perspective, it's always been the read that 15 years ago, when when Al Gore lost, I mean, since that election, that came after Columbine, and that was supposed to be a crystallizing event. Uh, it was not an issue during the election, and no, no, Democratic I operatives were. I beg to differ. Were, I beg to differ. It was an issue during the election, and uh, but Al Gore wasn't wasn't whacking at it. I mean, he no, was. But that didn't matter. People knew who Al Gore was. They knew they associated him with the. Uh, with the uh, Clinton administration, and there's a very powerful argument that uh, activism at the state level in Tennessee, his home state, in Arkansas, Clinton's home state, and in West Virginia, uh, that activism by gun gun rights activists um, helped lose those three states for Al Gore. You're making my point, Paul, which is why he was told to not rattle that, right? Which is why he was told that this is a losing thing for you. And that then became the playbook that you just don't want to risk losing Missouri or any of these swing right. states, Ohio, that are important. And again, it goes back to the Electoral College. And while there might be national uh, groundswell after these tragic events, it still goes back to a state-to-state issue and, and people loathe to lose um, swing states. Yep, I, I, I would agree with what you just said. And with that, I've got to sign off because I'm already late for my next thing. Paul Barrett, thank you so much for joining us, author of Glock, The Rise of America's Gun. And in studio with me, Craig Sheely, lifelong hunter, managing principal of Black Creek Group. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us. Thank you, Robin. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. We're on NPR One, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and WRIR. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Full D Radio. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. 